Hello, TSF family, and welcome to episode 18, season four of this spiritual fix. This is trauma two, or in other words, talking about trauma bonding. This is now part two of a four part series about trauma. Stay tuned for a great discussion. This spiritual fix. Two mystical mamas hacking the self-help game. With Anna Stromquist and Christina Wilson. Hi y'all, we wanted to give you a disclaimer and trigger warning about this episode as well as all the episodes in the trauma series in which we will be talking about domestic violence and other issues along those lines which could be triggering to people. We wanted to give you the number of the United States Domestic Violence Hotline, which is 1-800-799-7233, as well as encourage you to go onto Wikipedia and search for domestic violence hotlines for local numbers in any country in which that service is available. Love y'all. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Christina Wiltsey. Hello, Anna Stromquist again. (laughs) You are not a happy camper. I'm not. I'm not. We recorded this episode. We actually recorded what would be a double header in some ways. It was a very long episode. It was like an hour and 45 minutes for the second episode of Trauma this morning at 6.30 in the morning. And then my computer and Zoom decided to conflagrate into an amazing experience of technical difficulties as we are in this shadow period of Mercury retrograde. And and apparently we weren't supposed to rec- like post that episode. So... We had already had bonding. Yeah, I was saying we already had one delay, which was that it was raining when we were supposed to record and Anna has like a tin metal roof. So we couldn't record then. So we already had to delay it once. And this was like kind of the last, you know, this is like the last minute and then to lose the recording was really, really hard for me. It took up about like three and a half hours of my day trying to figure out and trying to fix it. So here we are again recording but we've decided it's a sign to make trauma bonding its own episode yes so what we're going to be talking about for this episode and the next this is a four-part series now is in part two and three we're talking about stress response cycles so we're going to talk about fawn in this episode aka trauma bonding and then in the following episode we're going to talk about flight fight and freeze but fawn needs its own episode because trauma bonding is such a complex thing and it's layers deep. And I think that setting the foundation with the fawn response of trauma bonding kind of sets the stage for all the other ones. Because as we were saying this morning, when we recorded this before, is that our responses are a cocktail. It's not a juice box. You don't get like a Capri Sun with one flavor. It's like you're getting a cocktail with a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. And some people respond more with flight, others with fight, others with fawn predominantly, but like we have mixtures of all these things in us. So fawn response is definitely the one that you're going to see the most when it comes to ongoing abuse of a partner, parent, family member, caregiver, boss, even when you have ongoing abuse, that's probably what you're going to see. You're also going to see fawn responses oftentimes with anxious attachment. 
So in a lot of ways, it's with kind of complex, more complex or developmental trauma can be a lot of the different things that you can see fawn for and also attachment, but we'll get into that. So yes, before let's, let's, what's the prelude, Anna? What are we talking about today? The prelude that I wanted to talk about was the show that I started watching on Hulu called The Patient with Steve Carell, who gets more attractive as he ages. Hottie with the beard. I don't know. He just like went from goofy to cutie, but it's a very interesting show in which this serial murder, and I'm not giving anything away because it's all in the preview. The serial murder kidnaps his psychotherapist because he doesn't want to kill anymore, but he knows the only way he can actually get therapy is to be totally honest with his therapist. And he can't be totally honest with his therapist unless he captures him and chains him to the floor. So he basically now has his therapist as his prisoner. And Steve Carell being the therapist has, this is the like case of his life. He has got to rehabilitate this serial murder or else he is going to die. So his whole life is on the line and it's a very, very interesting setup. And it's also interesting because I don't think psychotherapy is like the only avenue of therapy, which we're going to talk all about in the fourth part of this series. But I also wonder, are serial murders even rehabilitated? table like don't they just stop killing when they get too old or when they're I I I, I don't know like I, I don't know do they ever reform can they reform I mean that's a great question I feel like that's a question that gets brought up in the trauma bonding episode right yeah. that's that's what's going to get brought can up narcissists, a lot. can narcissists change so or can abusers can abuse are they worthy are they are they redeemable yeah it's a It's a tough question, especially with someone who's in the middle of a trauma bond or coming out of a trauma bond, which I can attest to myself for. So as I I'm really looking forward to hearing about trauma bonding today in light of having heard it once before and had a very, very strong emotional response to hearing that earlier today. So I feel like tell me a little bit about that before we go into it. Yeah, well. I think for me, it was interesting because I was listening to you talk and, you know, I've kind of alluded to this ever since the Robbie episode, probably when I was kind of talking about the parts of myself that I had exiled that were very similar to my abuser and kind of, I've been kind of unpicking this. The world has asked me to do it, you know, like the podcast has kind of pushed me into it with the whole father wound stuff. And as I've gone through it, I keep coming into all these different layers of understanding and you know, one of the things that my husband said to me yesterday, he was like, you know, I was kind of vacillating a little bit about like, well, should I do this? Or should I do that? Like when it comes to like, you know, healing the trauma, or like, what are the next steps or not really knowing what to do and, and not really knowing where to go. And he was like, I wish that I had recorded your voice. He's like, I wish I had recorded your voice after you had just been abused, like after you had just come out of it, and you had just like, escaped and felt powerful in your conviction that this was never going to happen to you again. And he's like, I just wish that you could hear yourself and you can hear how far you've come back from that place, like to a point of uncertainty and not not necessarily knowing if that was the right decision or second guessing myself, all those different things. So that happened yesterday, hearing you talk about trauma bonding and being like, I literally put a finger down for every, for the test that you're going to do for like every single one, except for like two and just feeling a ton of anger, a ton of anger at like, 
my the lack of protection that I had at like all of the different things that's kind of pushed me into more of a counter dependent position, which is the opposite of codependency for anyone who hasn't heard that it's more of an avoidant showing a lot of the times we may be disorganized, meaning that we show avoidant and anxious, depending on kind of who we're who we're with and where we are. I've learned more about that recently, but you know, counter dependency is really vilified a lot, but I've come to understand that it is the more kind of traumatized, if you want to say it, like the kind of more extreme reaction to trauma, like codependency is one level of it, right? But you're still seeking connection when you're in codependent, when you're a counter dependent, you've literally lost all faith in connection, right? And you don't feel as if you're, and yet you engage in behavior, but, and yet you engage in behaviors that pull a codependent towards you. So it's not a complete give up. You know it's not, it's not a complete give up, but once it gets close enough, then it's usually the, there's usually the tendency to isolate and become invisible and all and ghost and all those different things are there because ultimately you feel as if you are not redeemable, right? That you weren't worthy of love back then. So why should you be now? So you may be innocent enough to try and like attract somebody, but once it gets to be serious or once there's actually a commitment involved in it, then you back away because it's not something you want to do. So it's, it's a, there's a lot there. So I've been kind of wrestling with that. And my body is in, you know, there's trauma and then there's recovery from trauma. And a lot of the time the recovery doesn't start until you're in a safe place where you can actually like go through the experience of it. And we can talk about that more in the next episode, but you know, I feel like right now today I've been going through like a massive kind of emotional purging and recovery i'm in a recovery space and my body is literally in so much pain like every single joint in my body hurts my neck hurts my back hurts it's just like i like i'm having a hard time breathing and i don't have covid y'all like i this is this is 100 an emotional trauma response that's just being released in my body as a result of even just hearing what anna is going about to tell you guys so yeah yeah so, and then just to clarify that counterdependence, if you have a spectrum, you know, zero, let's say zero to a hundred, you know, let's say people 75 and this is, I'm making this up. There's no science with this. I'm just saying like people at, who score 75 and above on this scale would be narcissists. And then on the lower spectrum, you have the counterdependence. It's kind of like they're in the same family, but narcissism is a very extreme version of that. And yeah, and it's also a, a very abusive version of that, right, right, right. Like a, a counter dependent, for instance, will always want to be right, right. That is like a very common quality of counter dependency. That's also a very common thing with narcissistic tendency, right? They don't even understand that they're wrong, right? So you can see the difference of like, I always want to be right, not I always believe I'm right, but I always need to be right, versus of course I'm right, right? You can see how that kind of, in just in that one thing itself, like a counterdependent needs to be right because they don't want to make a mistake, right? Because they don't want to, they, they, they don't want to, you know, be, they want to be in, infallible. They want to be above reproach. And they kind of want to, you know, if they can come off as a per perfectionist and there's, there's a lot of stuff around that. But then as you go further and further and further down that road, then you're like, I am right. Of course I'm right. I'm right about everything, right? You see how you can, how taken to its extreme, it becomes narcissistic personality disorder. So yeah. Well, moving into trauma bonding, I'm going to be talking about the fawn response today, which is trauma bonding, as I said earlier. And before we start, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Danny DeVito 
principle, the Danny DeVito rule. I don't know if you've heard this, but it's so fascinating. I love it. <laughs> right. So, so if people were talking about on Reddit, you know, uh, which fictional characters are idolized by people who miss the entire point of the story? They're alluding to something like, you know, the man gray from the 50 shades or alluding to the, the guy in Lolita who has an affair with his stepdaughter, right. you know, it's like, you miss the whole point of the movie. If you think that that guy is cool, the Danny DeVito rule in this is if changing the actor to Danny DeVito made the character psycho, they were actually always a psycho. So I do love Danny DeVito, but I just think it's a funny analogy. <laughs> so yeah, we can kind of apply this to your life with trauma bonding. Like if Danny DeVito did all of these things, then would that person be a narcissist? Would it be a trauma bond? You know, like we can get so caught up in the charms if, if another character plays the role right but i'm going to go into first a quiz coming from the book traumatic bond and a narcissistic relationship by lauren kozlowski and first we're going to go through a quiz and it's one of those put your finger down ones however she says if you even put one finger down then chances are you are in a trauma bond okay so let's go okay. through this quiz and there are eight questions number one you know that your partner or ex is abusive and manipulative, but you can't seem to be able to let go of them. You give a lot of thought to the many incidents of abuse you've endured. You engage in bouts of self-blame, and the abuser is the negotiator of your self-esteem and self-worth. Despite the pain and hurt they make you feel, letting go isn't something you feel capable of. Two, you often walk on eggshells in attempt to try to appease or please their abuser, despite the fact they give you very little in return, apart from from perhaps a few crumbs of attention, you find tiptoeing around them as something you have to do in order to maintain peace or normality. Three, you feel like you're addicted to them. You seek out their validation and approval and you feel like you need this from them as it acts as a source of comfort for you. Their approval is a shelter of comfort, particularly after incidents of abuse. This indicates a strong psychological attachment to the abuser. Number four, you find that you defend your abuser and keep their wicked side a secret from others. You might have been in a situation where you've refused to press charges against your abuser or you've defended them against those who tried to tell you that they're toxic. In all likelihood, you perhaps even present your relationship as a happy one to your peers and family, attempting to minimize their abusive tendencies. You may also find that you exaggerate any positive characteristics that they have in an attempt to show your abuser in a favorable light. And I really want to talk about this one in a minute when I finish the quiz. Okay. Number five, should you attempt to leave the abuser, you find that you always give in to the abuser's fake remorse, their pitiful crocodile tears, and their promises to change in the future. Despite the pattern of abuse and its toxic cycle being clearly evident, you grasp onto the misplaced hope that, that things can get better. Number six, you may have developed some self-sabotaging behaviors and could engage in some form of self-harm to disassociate yourself from the pain of the abuse. You may also find that you're prone to engaging in other self-sabotaging behaviors, such as heavy drinking or taking drugs. This is often to mask the profound sense of shame caused by the abuse. Number seven, you're prepared to lower your standards for this toxic person, accepting what you previously believed was unacceptable. This happens time after time, and you may find that as the abuse continues, you accept more horrific and damaging abuse each time, aka you're lowering your bar. And last, you change your behavior and personality in an attempt to meet the abuser's ever-moving goalposts, despite the fact that the abuser rarely, if ever, changes their behavior to please you. Did some of this resonate with you? Did you read them and find that you could apply them to your own situation? Do they run parallel? If you answered yes to any of these, it is likely you're in a tightly wound grip of an abusive relationship bound to your abuser by a toxic trauma bond. Right. I did How many did you? I had seven. 
Which one did you not? Lowering your bar. Okay. Well, one thing I wanted to talk about, and I think it's very interesting is when they talk about, you know, how you exaggerate their good traits and you minimize their bad traits. And when we talk about reactive abuse next episode, reactive abuse would be fight, you know, and the whole fight, flight, fawn stuff. Reactive abuse is fight. And that's when you fight back. And something really interesting to note is that when the victim fights back, they feel very, very guilty and very ashamed of that abuse. And they and yet the abuser will tell everyone about that because the abuser's plan is to isolate the victim. So the abuser has no problem sharing the abuse that the victim throws at them. And yet the victim will be very careful not to reveal to others the horrific things that they do. They're not going to tell their people, oh, my husband's cheating on me. Oh, my husband pushed me down. Oh, you know, my husband did this, this, and this. They're not going to share that. They want to protect the abuser. Whereas the abuser is very happy to share the failures of the victim because that will only isolate them more. So if you are concerned, are you an abuse? Are you the abuser or is it reactive abuse? One way to kind of gauge that is, are you, do you feel bad about the abuse? Do you feel really guilty? Cause I tell you what, the narcissists do not, they, yeah. they do not. And if you feel really guilty about your reactive abuse and you don't want to tell people about it again, chances are you are the victim here. You are not the abuser. Yeah, I have to, it's interesting because you say that. And for me, I was just like recalling, like one of the things that I always do every single time that I recall an argument with this person is I always talk about why I may have deserved it, like what I may have done prior to the actual thing happening. Like, oh, I was really dumb and I did that. I didn't, I didn't do that. I made a mistake. I should have known better. And then, you know, and then I didn't react well afterwards. I didn't react well once it happened and and that could have made it worse. And I literally, I don't know if I did it at the time, but like ever since then, like whenever I recall it to anybody else, I'm always just like, you know, I always kind of say what I did to do wrong other than other than when I'm like trying to kind of get people on side, which I definitely have done on occasion, which also feels very guilty. I feel very, very guilty for trying to get people on on side and like have people react and like have people kind of back me up because I feel like that's such a wrong thing to do. And it's so it's so it's just interesting for me to hear. But your abuser would never feel guilt about that. In fact, they will triangulate and hopefully get other people to be against you. Right. Right. And in fact, sick them on you, so to speak. I've I've had that happen a couple of times, right? Where it's like, not only do you get other people on your side, but then you like invite them over so that they can be your bulldog or that they can be your, you know, they can be your enforcer even more so, which just makes you feel even worse. So yeah. Right. Right. Yep. So how do they do it? I'm going to talk about the seven stages of getting a person to be trauma bonded. Now, in the case of a family where you were grown up surrounded by someone who has trauma bonded you, or you've been kidnapped and you've had to form a trauma bond with your, your kidnapper, uh, that can also be called Stockholm syndrome, which we're going to talk about later. But it, as far as romantic relationships, this is how it usually goes. Okay. So there are seven stages to the trauma bond setup. Okay. Stage one is love bombing. The narcissist will shower you with love, affection, attention, validation. It is a way to kind of draw you into their cat trap. It's basically the honeymoon period, but unlike any other honeymoon period that you see in healthy dating situations, they will, the narcissist instead will declare their love, obsession, and affection in the very early stages. They often picks their prey based on characteristics that they exhibit like empathetic, kind, trusting, 
because these people will not question someone's motive when they declare their adoration and love. So they're, they know their prey and they know who to look for. And so when they start love bombing and you're like, this is great, it's because the victim is often a good person and believes in the best and is not thinking that this is some sort of mastermind plan, but oh, it is. Number two, stage two, trust and dependency. You begin to trust that they will love you unconditionally always. You now start to depend on them for validation. The abundance of love bombing can only result in gaining your trust and they know this. And so this helps breed dependency. Stage four, the criticism begins. The narcissist gradually reduces the amount of care and validation that they once gave you and start to criticize you and place blame on you for things that you have no control over. They even ramp up hurting you, demeaning you, belittling you. This is when, when they start doing shitty behaviors and you call them out on it or say you feel bad about it, they, they pull away or they make you feel like you're going insane. And the thought of losing them is gut-wrenching. What's really painful about this stage is that in the beginning, they were so awesome. So you're like, what has gone wrong? And then they're telling you, well, you're the one who's making me like this. And so your self-esteem starts to diminish because of that. And it was funny because I was reading this book and I was listening to that song, Riptide. You know that song? I want to be your left-hand man. Yeah, da, yeah. Da, da. yeah. Okay, so it's like a famous song right now and I'm listening to Riptide. I'm like, this song is all about a trauma bonding because the singer talks about all my friends are green with Emmy because she's so pretty and she looks like Michelle Pfeiffer. And then he goes, but I'm going to get in a lump in my throat because she's going to get the words to the song wrong. So it's like the setup. It's like, first he sets her up about being so amazing and beautiful. And he does triangulation where he brings in other people to kind of validate her worth, right? Like my friends are green with Envy. You got to see her she looks at michelle pfeiffer and then as far as something that was is is actually in her control which is her singing this song he gets a lump in his throat because she's going to get the words wrong it's like build up build up build up put you on a pedestal chop you down with a little criticism and then the criticism just gets stronger and stronger and stronger as time goes by and you know i was telling christina that i'm pretty sure that my first romantic relationship was with a narcissist and or a total asshole and i can say that freely because he doesn't speak english and there's no way he's ever going to listen to this podcast but (laughs) the point is is he would start off by you know just criticizing very minor things that i did like really small things and it's like you would just get used to being criticized to the point that like later on I remember I once asked him, one of his ex-girlfriends was like this TV personality in Argentina. And he talked about like this amazing date he took her. Why, why he did this is beyond me. He told me about this amazing date he took her on where he bought her flowers. And I once said, you know, we've been together for like two years. How come you never bought me flowers? And he's like, oh, because you're not pretty like her. And it's oh just God. like at this point, right? It's like, and, and you know what? I didn't leave him right away. You know, they say on average, it takes seven times to actually leave your abuser. I think I broke up with him like four times before I actually freaking did it. But like, can you imagine being in a relationship with someone who tells you that they're not going to buy you flowers because you're not pretty? Like, why, why was he with me then? The, the yeah. whole thing is just absurd. But it's you see, totally that's absurd. how it starts. It starts yeah. off with minor little criticism and then it builds and builds and builds. Then you're suddenly, suddenly you're at fault for everything that they do. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. We're going to go into gaslighting now gaslighting stage four the narcissist will tell you that their unhappiness is all your fault if you would only do exactly as they say they'd be able to love you like they used to gaslighting could be a whole book of its own it's a nasty toxic crazy making form of manipulation and it is poison to the core so i was talking to my husband about gaslighting he's like i want to make sure do i do it i was like you don't do it can i give you an example an example would be if he's late 
running late, like that's one of my triggers, right? With abandonment. And if he's running late and yet, and he doesn't answer his phone, I don't know where he is. I start to panic. So let's say he comes home, you know, 30 minutes later than he said he was. And I'm upset. And, and I'm like, where were you? Where were you? Why didn't you answer your phone? And a nor there, there could be two normal reactions. One would be, I'm really sorry. I'm late. I know how much it bothers you. I'm so sorry. I won't do it again. Or he could disagree and say, I was running late and I was really busy doing this. I didn't have my phone with me. And you know, I, I'm like, I'm not going to apologize. Okay. There's that. And then gaslighting would be not only did I not do anything wrong, you're fucking crazy. And you are projecting your abandonment wound on me and you are reacting on it. So then not all, they, they actually make you the bad guy. Yeah. Right? Or it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Like it shouldn't be a like big deal. I get to you. define if it's the big deal or not. Yeah. Right. There's that. Okay. Stage five control is set. You feel like your only chance of getting back to that happy, wonderful feeling of stage one is to do things the narcissist way. You so desperately want to be looked at, loved, adored, and cared for it in that way. And you think the only way you can is to basically do what they ask you to do. And you want this, this, you have that slight sliver of hope that they're going to revert to adoring you again. And they will intermittently give you those little times of adoration. Like when I used to joke with my friend before I knew what trauma bonding was that I was dick blind. And that's why I stayed in that bad relationship because the sex was so good. But in retrospect, I realized that the sex was so good because he was an asshole to me all the other times that when we, when we had sex, he'd pay attention to me. I had validation that he found me attractive and pretty. And he was looking at me and, you know, like that's when I felt, I finally felt loved and finally felt cared for. And, and so for me, that was my love bombing, intermittent love bombing. Right. right. But, but it was a trauma bond. Yeah. yeah. And trauma bonding sex is probably really good. I think, I think that's probably a universal thing. So if it's, if, it, if it's a partner, yeah. Or, partner, right? or a version of a family would be, you know, Christmas or birthday, right. Where you like maybe actually get something right. And it becomes like everything to you is like what you can get there because it's like the only time in which everything you can pretend everything's happy or you get something that, you know, means that, that you're loved by even in the smallest way, even if it's just, you know, hundred, right. hundred and fifty dollars, something like or, that. Or whatever your language of love would be like, I guess mine is touch. So that's when I would perceive mine was sex, but let's say yours is gifts, right? Then well, I've never been gifts. able to tell what mine are because I've never had a really, I, I had a lot of conditional love, right? And because it was conditional, I never actually got to figure out what it was. I, Cause I've never been able to tell you, like it changes all the time. Like it changes with the wind. I'm like, yeah, today it's words. And then it's gifts and then it's whatever. And I can't really tell what it is. Are you just a Leo moment. in disguise? I, my language of love is all of them. Give me you. <laughs> that is true too. <laughs> that would be nice. All right. Stage six, loss of self. Things get worse, not better. And you resign yourself to accepting their abuse. Should you fight back, they will intensify their abuse. Stage six is where you're entirely confused, miserable, and your self-esteem is at an all-time low. This is a very heartbreaking stage because you've become a shell of your being. You're alive and breathing, but you're like an emotional corpse. You're a shadow of the person you once were. Your dreams, goals, hopes, and desires are mute at this point. You don't really have any, and you're pretty much all consumed with this relationship. She doesn't say this part in the book, but my guess is you might realize that 
this partner isn't good for you and you're fantasizing about leaving them, but you just absolutely can't, right? Like you just feel completely trapped, which leads to stage seven addiction. Your family and friends are concerned about you. You feel terrible about the situation, but you cannot leave because your abuser is now your everything. All you can think about is winning their affection and their validation. So think ROCD, relationship OCD, but it's very problematic and you feel a lot of guilt and shame about how you've been lowering the bar constantly and that your, your obsession with this relationship is all consuming. This is what the abuser has strived for all along, your addiction to them. And they know this and they've played their role correctly because now they can hurt you, cheat on you, lie to you, act toxic to you, and you won't really do anything about it. You're going to put up with everything and just keep lowering the bar. Right. Can I ask, are those the, are those the steps? Those are the seven stages that get you bonded. Yeah. So I have a question and in a lot of ways, I feel like trauma bonding can happen, not just in narcissistic relationships, right? Like, I mean, and I'm not saying that I'm like, I'm not saying that my abuser's not a narcissist. There I go defending. But, but what my point is, is that like, I feel like in a lot of ways with a narcissist, if you're experiencing any kind of narcissist abuse in a family relationship, there are also those other dynamics of like the golden child and the scapegoat. And it may be that, for instance, if you're the scapegoat, which is in a narcissistic relationship, the scapegoat is the one who basically every, all the ills of the narcissist or the abuser get pushed onto the scapegoat and the golden child, they can't do anything wrong. Right. And it's, and they get, and that's how you triangulate the kids around each other, or that's how you triangulate anybody in the relationship. But, you know, it's just interesting because I was looking at those steps in terms of familial things and less of like someone who's stuck with kids or, you know, kids happen to be, you know, like they're there for the partner or something along those lines. Like there are other people involved that the narcissist then has to learn how to manipulate. So there's like trauma bonds that happen in those secondary relationships as, to, as well. So the golden child could get trauma bonded because they're being love bombed. Like that's totally it, right? Like they're getting love bombed and they're always being validated and they always, you know, they're always basically vaulted and put up on a pedestal. And so who doesn't want to be in that position? Of course that comes with its own issues as well. But the scapegoat doesn't ever get love bombed. They get hate bombed, right? But they also get a very intermittent love when it does happen. Like I was saying, like sometimes you get a gift or sometimes you get something like that. You kind of get this intermittent experience in which you get this relief from being vilified. And that feels like enough to be able to bond you to be like, hey, actually, I'm I'm trauma bonded, even though I was a scapegoat. I'm, uh, you know, in a lot of situations, I'm trauma bonded because I'm still hoping that I'm going to get loved. Right. And I'm still like waiting for that payment in some ways. And I feel like a lot of ways that's like, I, you, I remember you told me this, like when I was coming out of my thing, you were like, why are you, it was like right after it happened. And you were just like, why are you like, you just need to get rid of this idea of family being a healthy thing. Like you need to get rid of, of this idea that these people are going to be these things that they're never going to be. Right. And that is the, that for me was the trauma bond was like holding out for that. So what is like, kind of, did, do they talk about that? Like, I'm just reflecting on what you're on those steps. She, and like this, this book specifically was talking about romantic relationships. She didn't go into family stuff. So I don't, I don't know, you know, I could okay. say, you know, might be worth reading a book about narcissist family dynamics. I know that from just 
reading Reddit or, you know, reading autobiographies of people, like it's a very common thing with abusers to have like one child be the, the target. And then once that child either is killed by the parent or taken away, then they move on to the next. And, and from what I've read, it's just damaging, maybe, maybe not just as damaging, but it's very damaging for the siblings who are the golden siblings to watch it happen because they are terrified that they are one day going to be that hated child. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I would also say from the research that I've done on golden children and scapegoats, like kind of in the, in the realm of all of this is that, you know, there's a very distinctive, especially if you kind of switch off between them, like maybe one of them is the golden child one day and the other one's a scapegoat or the other one gets ignored the other day, right? Which was a lot in the dynamic that I experienced. Like you really can, you really can feel like, because, because narcissists and familial things, like when you're in that kind of trauma bonding experience is that everybody wants everything to be okay. Everybody wants everything to be healthy. And they want not only do you want to appear to be healthy right because that would be like totally shaming to not appear to be okay and not appear to be like the brady bunch or whatever you know the stepford family or whatever you want to call it like not only do you want to appear it but there's like a part of you that always hopes that it is like that that maybe today it's going to be like that like maybe today the abuse isn't going to happen like maybe today is going to be better and so i feel like for me when i've like explored this in the last couple of weeks and when I was exploring it massively today I really felt that like with familial things it really feels like the trauma bond is like is hoping that 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 ideal can be sustained right that maybe there is a point in which everybody can grow up and not be damaged and and actually have relationships with each other and you hold out for this idealist notion but really the healing comes when you recognize that there isn't actually there may not be a redemption story, right? Or maybe the redemption story is you being made to be completely independent and not actually have any reliability on them whatsoever, but also not be hyper independent, right? Which is a lot of the time with the scapegoat becomes the avoidant, becomes the counter dependent, which is then all about hyper independence and nobody has to take care of me. I'm totally self-sufficient, right? It's like, how do you find that healthy place in which you still have an emotional connection to someone or not? I don't know. So just just kind of reflecting on that on both romantic and then the kind of familial part as well and kind of what I've learned from from narcissistic well, and abuse cycles like that. Well, I think when you're talking about familiar bonds or even say job situations where you can't quit that job, like you rely on that job and you need it and your boss is a narcissist or whatever. I mean, there are times when the option to just completely cut all ties is not an option for you. And we've talked about that before that, that, that model of like, you know, go no contact, completely cut ties with people isn't, isn't going to work for everybody, you know, easier said than done. Those more tricky ones, you know, siblings, parents, cousins, bosses, you know, there's, there's just a lot of sticky, sticky stuff. And I don't know, you know, I don't know what the answer to it is, but maybe being aware of what's happening is, is just at least the first step and then you deciding yeah. what works for you on a day-to-day -day or moment-to-moment -moment. yeah you know, yeah and we'll know. go i think we'll go into that more into the last episode right i think that i think that we're kind of uncovering fawn and all of its different all of its different values and i wanted to add that kind of different dimension of familial relationships of abuse and like how the trauma bonding it it may not it's obviously hopefully it has you know has nothing to do with you know kind of the intermittent love bombing that a romantic relationship would have but 
it does have its other aspects of like I'm a kid who has needs and yes, I'm experiencing developmental trauma because I'm experiencing sustained abuse over a period of time. And this is a person who's supposed to be providing for me. This isn't like right. an well, equal I've partnership. I've seen parents gaslight right? children. Oh yeah. yeah. I've seen parents, parents gaslight children and that's a yeah. form of narcissist abuse. And yeah, you know, I've... there's a born dependence, right? Like you get dependent. Well, you're, it's like, I guess you don't even have to do stage one and two because it's like, that's exactly. naturally just going to occur. They're naturally just going to love you and be dependent on you. Right. Like right. That's just there's an expectation happen. of love. There's an expectation of love. And when it becomes conditional, then that's when things go wrong. Right. And, but you still experience all the same stuff. You still experience triangulation between either the golden child or the scapegoat or any other people who are considered better at things and life than you are. And you still experience hoovering, right? Which is when all of a sudden there's like that whole movement in which you're wanting to suck your, you know, people are wanting to suck you back in. And there's also, you know, victim blaming and, you know, all of the different things that you can see when you, when you get into narcissistic abuse, all those abuse things still happen in familial and relationships, right? And right. romantic relationships, they just take on a certain different flavor. Yes. So now I want to talk about four different things about the trauma bond. I want to talk about intermittent reinforcement, Stockholm syndrome, cognitive dissonance and incubus slash succubus, which is obviously not covered in that book. <laughs> it's just a whole other thing, but let's go into in intermittent reinforcement. So I don't know if you remember BF Skinner, he was the, the psychologist that would work with rats to see how they dealt with re rewards and punishments, you know, to see like, because their brain is considered very similar to human brains. Like how, how do we respond to say work and reward? So Researchers tried these kind of patterns. Pattern one, reward the rats every time they press this bar. This turned out to be the least effective reward pattern. The rats expected to be rewarded after every time they touched the bar. When the food rewards eventually stopped, the rats would just press the bar one or two times and then be like, fuck this. Pattern two, the rats get rewarded for every 10th press of the bar. For this pattern, researchers got rats accustomed to pressing the bar 10 times before food was given. This meant that the rats could not gather any more food until they'd done the work of pressing the bar 10 times. And most rats tried at least one more round of the bar touches to get another, like they did 10 more, but it didn't take too long for all the rats to realize there would be no more food rewards for their efforts and they stopped. Pattern three, food would be rewarded every 10 minutes. For this pattern, rats learned that they would only get their food pellets on a set time schedule. And when they came to understand that, they became very frugal with their presses and they tended to press the bar only once or twice towards the end of the 10 minute waiting period. And then when the pellets came, they would press, 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 press the bar, right? predictable. Now this one is called intermittent reinforcement pattern number four. In this pattern, researchers finally out with the rats by completely scrapping any predictable pattern of reward. And they randomize the times between reward and moving the goalposts as to how many bar presses, like maybe it's, you know, one time you press the bar, you get the food. Sometimes it's five, sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's 20. What's fascinating about this test is that the rats kept pressing the bar, even though they were never rewarded again for doing so. So basically intermittent reinforcement creates the most hope. The hopeful response of bar pressing was never stopped on a reward schedule intermittent reinforcing and the rats continued to anticipate that they would once again be rewarded. Just like these hopeful rats, the narcissist is acting like the researchers and they know on some level, I don't know how they know, or they're just fucking BF Skinner assholes. I don't know how they do this, but they just know that, you know, they give you some intermittent reinforcement and you're going to stick around for a long time. You know, you know, you're going to buy me flowers once every 10 years, you're going to 
I was going to say, you're going to lick my pussy, but I'm not going to put that on the air. Um, <laughs> oh, please do. <laughs> can't do that you know you're gonna you're gonna get really you're gonna get really well fucked one night but then you're (laughs) gonna be fucked in other ways all the other nights and then you know intermittent reinforcement is gonna keep you basically addicted to horrific abuse okay so it's hard to accept that someone want to hurt you and cause you pain intentionally it's extremely hard to wrap your head around this especially if you're an empathetic kind, loving, normal person. So you couple intermittent reinforcement with seven stages of entrapment and the narcissist now has a wonderful recipe for complete control. Okay. Now we're going to talk about Stockholm syndrome. So you probably all heard of Stockholm syndrome. It's not okay. the DSM, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Hold on. This syndrome is not actually a named disease. You will not find it in the DSM. You won't find it in a manual. It originates from a 1973 bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden, where four hostages were held for a total of six days. During their imprisonment and fully in the firing line of harm, the hostages seemed to defend the actions of their captors. They even went as far as to visit them when they were in prison. For anyone who's not familiar with Stockholm syndrome, it's essentially a syndrome in which you become protective of your captor or abuser. In fact, in some cases, we'll even foil authorities to not get them in trouble, or you will evade escape when you can. It's something that develops when people find themselves in a situation where they have intense fear of harm or physical injury and believe that all control is solely in the hands of their abuser. The response over time is like an instinctive survival strategy for the victim. And I think people who have survived religious trauma or cults might really understand this whole phenomenon a little more deep, right? Now, there are some cases of modern day Stockholm syndrome. If you remember Patty Hearst, one of the the Hearst heirs, when she was 19, she was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. A couple of months after her kidnapping, she was photographed participating in a bank robbery. Then I don't know if you, anyone remembers in 2009, there was the J.C. Lee Duggard situation where Philip and Nancy Garrido had kidnapped this girl, J.C., and kept her in a tent in their backyard in Tahoe, California, and she had two children by Garrido, and she was held hostage in a tent for 18 years, and it transpired that the opportunity to escape was presented to her many times in captivity, but she had bonded with them in a way of survival and so did not flee. Another high-profile case you may have heard of was about Natashka, Natasha Kapunch, Kapush, who in August 2006 managed to escape from her kidnapper, Wolfgang Pricklopil. And I really read this a lot. I think it happened in Austria. But basically, she was kept in a windowless cell that was 54 square feet for eight years. She was permitted into the main house where she would cook and clean for her captor and sometimes even go on walks with him. And when she finally did escape, he, I think, threw himself under a train and she she like lamented and said he was some poor soul like yeah that's some crazy shit so there is this phenomenon that you know we could bond with our captors right well i mean yeah that's yeah that's it's interesting because i that's i would say that stockholm syndrome would be very very similar to being in the familial thing right and also being in any other situation in which you feel as if your survival any time in which your survival is put on the line Right. Whether it's like I need my basic needs met because you're a kid or I need you to not kill me as in Stockholm syndrome or, you know, I can't afford, you know, I need I need your money or I need your support or I need whatever it is in the in the case of abusive relationships. So, yeah, that's that's very, 
very interesting how very putting interesting. survival in the line really does make it so that you're much more likely to trauma bond and then believe it and not be able to kind of keep a separation or a distance from it. Mm -hmm. I want to talk now about cognitive dissonance and then we'll talk about incubus. So cognitive dissonance is a psychological term that it's, hold on one second. All right. And I just want everyone to know there might be some background sounds now because my kids do not respect me. I need to trauma bond them. So anyway. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. Sorry, that was hilarious. Go ahead. Yep. All right. Cognitive dissonance is a psychological term that describes the emotional confusion that you experience with a narcissist. And it's not something that occurs in healthy relationships. Cognitive dissonance is the discomfort you hold you is the discomfort you experience when you hold two conflicting ideas simultaneously. We do not like the discomfort of conflicting thoughts and conflicting thoughts. And so the theory suggests that when it occurs, we have a motivational drive to either rationalize and justify the abuser's behavior, or maybe lower your bar. You're going to adjust your attitudes, values, and actions to let the dissonance fly. And I, and I can think of I know in my situation, I'm sure other people can imagine that you keep lowering the bar and you keep making excuses for them because it's so much easier to just make an excuse for them or let it go than to like hold in your mind. Like this is someone that I think is amazing. And yet they're being really mean, you know? Yeah. Really well, fun. yeah, it's, it's also easier to hold. It is also easier because like if somebody is immovable and scary and threatening, it's so much easier to just erase your own feelings than it is to try and change theirs, right? So I, like the dissonance is like, okay, so if I'm holding two things and one is that I'm in pain or I hurt and the other one is you hurt me, you can either choose to confront and say, well, you hurt me, or you can just say, well, I don't feel pain and then you get rid of the cognitive dissonance. So you're more likely to run over your own right. feelings and get rid of them because that's a lot easier to erase than it is to erase or confront somebody who's actually harmed you. Right, right. So with cognitive dissonance, the victim may also have to keep adjusting their values and the bar and their beliefs because they have made huge commitments and investments in the relationship that almost cement them into the relationship forever. And so these are, these are four of them. These are four of them. Family investments. The victim feels that investing everything in their abusive partner is the only way they can keep their family together. Two, monetary investments. The narcissists and abusers in general typically seek to control the family's financial situation. Their victim is then trapped in a position that... They're financially dependent. We've heard talked about financial abuse in the past. The series made on Netflix is an excellent one to show you how financial abuse can then lead to domestic violence. People in this situation often say, quote, if I had X amount of money, I'd be out of here, but I don't. So I'm staying put. So I'm staying put, end quote. Number three, lifestyle investments due to having to share financial security with the abuser, willingly or not, the victim may fear that they can lose their lifestyle, not just themselves, but their children, and they will stay because they fear homelessness or poverty. Number four, intimacy investments. Abusers will often use blackmail of intimacy against their partner. We're going to talk in the future about retaliation or reactive abuse. And so in those situations, the partner might record you or videotape you in re reactive abusive situations and kind of use that against you. You know, I know 
my, I had a friend whose ex was a narcissist and he threatened to tell her mother that she had had some abortions that after he raped her, by the way, without condoms, you know, he would use that against her for control, which by the way, the mom didn't even fucking care. It, it was just a, just a horrible horrible case of, of, of a trauma bond situation. All right. Intimacy investments, abusers often, okay. Abusers often use the blackmail. Um, the victim feels that the only way for them to feel okay is for them to stay. Right. And then you also have within that intimacy investment, I would think is that sunken cost fallacy, which is the whole con concept that like the more time or energy you put into to an investment, you don't want to let it go. So you'll hear things like we've come this far, or, we've been through so much already, or you might even say, well, I'm already this age. Like, why should I leave them? Because I'm so old. No one will want me now. And they've already invested my youth in this person, blah, 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 blah. So there's just like a lot of different things that you can kind of tell yourself to get you to keep you stuck in these kind of relationships right oh yeah yeah and then and one thing she doesn't talk about in the book but i just am aware of is this concept of incubus or succubus which is basically we talked about demon attachments entity attachments and it's basically an incubus or succubus incubus being male succubus being female it's kind of like a vampire where they have this glamour and they're able to kind of lure you in and they basically it's like this energy hold it's like a spell that they have on you you know on an energetic level and we're going to talk about how you can release that in the fourth part of this series but one way you can recognize them is that these people literally look like shit when they're not getting their quote-unquote food and when they are being nourished by their victim, they're, they're, they look differently. Like, I know this sounds crazy, but you will see physiological changes in their face when they're getting their, their blood. Right. Yeah. 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 It's, it, it just, it strikes me so much that so much of this kind of trauma bonding in which it's intentional in the cases that you're describing, like it's, it's a narcissistic kind of abuse in which it's very intentional or in cases in which there's just so much chaos and so much everyone's in survival mode or whatever it is that like the war on all of our self-worth is really what's at stake here, right? Where it's like a narcissist is continually battling to erode our self-worth or as I learned the other day, self-esteem is to, to change our self-esteem, self-esteem being different than self-worth because self-esteem is the difference between is when there's a very like if you have a very big difference between your actual worth and what you think of your worth, then that means that you have very low self-esteem. But if you're aligned with your worth, like if you think you're as worthy, kind of like as if you have as much value as you think you do, then you have a very high self-esteem. So when there's not a very big delta kind of between how you are and what you and like and how you actually are and how you think of yourself are, then that's the difference between like low and high self-esteem. But the point being that like, ultimately, for those of us who have been traumatized, fawn is a relationship and is a, is a kind of, it seems to me from what I'm hearing is, is something that is very much so a reaction in which we feel as if we don't have any self-worth and that we can only gain it from somebody else right? It's not, we're not running away to protect our self-worth. We're not, you know, like as in flight and we're not fighting to defend our self-worth and we're not freezing and kind of disappearing so that maybe no one will bother us or pay attention to us. We're actually trying to gain our self-worth through another person, which can be such a dangerous thing because, you know, 
it's so, so hard to be able to restore. And obviously your abuser is gonna be the last person who is going to restore your self-worth. So at a lot of us, when we're going through these journeys are in journeys of trying to find our own sense of value and self-worth. And by finding our own sense of value and self-worth, that's when we are able to stand up and be like, I can leave now, or my survival isn't at stake, or actually maybe being homeless is better than being in this abusive relationship, right? That's when that's when we get that feeling of what our self-worth is so much more than what this person is giving us in this kind of, in this fond reaction that we're giving them. So, you know, this that is, I feel so much of what trauma is, is regaining that, is regaining our sense of self-worth and our worthiness for love. Yeah, beautifully said. All right, so we're gonna talk about the five stages of accepting that you are trauma bonding. This again is coming from the book by Lauren Zokolowski in the show notes, the five stages of accepting that you are trauma bonded. Okay. Victims who go on to become survivors of an abusive relationship progress through a process of five stages before finally breaking free. And just keep in mind on average, it takes seven attempts to leave your abuser. So if you, if you have left and come back again and again, that is a normal part of this. Okay. It doesn't mean you failed. Number one is denial. This is where we deny or minimize the abuse we've endured. Despite everyone around us seeing it, we seem to lack awareness of how bad it truly is. We minimize the abuse we're enduring. We exaggerate our role in it. If there's anything like bruises or red flags of abuse, we have excuses on the spot to protect our abuser. And the fear of losing the partner and fear of losing them made me think, well, I just love hard, right? I just love hard. I just love deep. You know, you don't love hard. You don't, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a question of loving hard. It's a question of an unhealthy attachment. And in this stage of denial, we also internalize blame and rationalize. If I hadn't done this, then they wouldn't have gotten so angry at me, or I know their triggers and I, I set them off, you know? So there's a lot of you taking responsibility for their behaviors, right? Number two, this stage is admitting your reality. You can't stay in stage one forever. You're eventually going to wake up a little bit and face the reality that your life is on the brim with toxic abuse, that you're putting up with way more than you ever bargained for, that you've lowered the bar again and again. You might notice that the things that you consider to be deal breakers, you're now letting happen. Your deal breaker might be that your, your, your partner cheats on you and yet they've cheated on you multiple times. And you just keep on chucking away, like, you know, like, oh, well, it's my fault because I don't do my hair good enough, whatever. All right. Stage three is preparing to leave. When we realize that the, when we finally realize that the enduring the, Stage three is preparing to leave. We finally come to be aware that we have no other choice but to leave. And if you're paying attention to the signs of the universe, the universe is going to knock on your door, slap on your face and make it abundantly clear. Maybe you get a STD scare. Maybe you almost lose your children to their negligence. Like there's just like the universe is going to make it clear if you're paying attention that leaving is really your only best option. Be under no illusion. However, a lot of people never even reach the stage and they fluctuate between stage one and two. They know that they're in a toxic situation and they just go back and forth between denial and acceptance of how toxic things are. 
stage four is leaving. This is without a shadow of a doubt, an enormous step to take. It's, it's extremely ridden with doubt. Like doubt is a normal part of this stage because think about it. You've basically been Stockholm syndromed and brainwashed, you know? So leaving is very difficult in the TV show, the recent TV show, Dublin, Ohio, about a girl who escapes a cult. The therapist says, look, she's physically left the cult, but the indoctrination is still in her mind, you know? And so you got to think like the toxic, the toxic abuse is part of the way you think it's in your mind. There's going to be moments of doubt. You know, you yourself were talking about how you put your foot down about your abuser and then you were vacillating like, well, maybe they're not so bad. You know, it's normal to doubt. You are going to doubt you. I don't know how to say it, but you've, you've been in a really mentally, you've been enslaved mentally in some yeah. ways, energetically. And so it's, it's, it's yeah. coming out physically is not just enough. You're going to feel those emotional, mental, and energy ties, even if you physically mm -hmm. get up and leave. Okay. So stage five is very important. And that is maintaining your strength. It's not just going to be that you leave and you're done. Like I say, you're going to have emotional, mental, and spiritual energy resonances with this person. You're going to think that it's over but you have just begun the true journey of healing, you're going to have to conf confront your past, confront the parts of you that have hated yourself enough to let this happen, confront the parts that hate yourself that stayed in the relationship, even though you knew it was abusive. And this is going to be the toughest part is maintaining the strength after it, but you can do it. Plenty of people I know have done it. I have done it. Christina is doing it. You can come out of a trauma bond. Okay. I want to talk about a couple more things. So here are the author's suggestions for how to emotionally break away from the trauma bond when you're in the craving cycle. The craving cycle is when you're having your doubts, you're craving their love, affection, validation again. Number one, find a positive distraction, find something positive to do with your energy. We talked a lot in the drama triangle about how the victim becomes the creator, the persecutor becomes the challenger, and the rescuer becomes a coach. So if you can find something that can convert your victim energy into creator energy, that could be creating something. Maybe it's art, maybe it's dance, maybe it's singing, maybe it's light language, maybe it's making a garden, you know, maybe it's coming up with a new hobby or creating a business. You know, you hear about so many badass boss bitches that have done so after becoming single moms, you know, channel that victim consciousness into creation. Okay. So there's that. Number two, try to connect with someone healthy. This can be hard if your abuser has separated you or segregated you from people that you used to love and care about, but try to reconnect with those people. Or maybe you go to a group, you can go to Al-Anon. Al-Anon is a, is a great way to meet others who are on this codependency journey of healing. Number three, she talks about writing in a journal. We're going to talk about so many other ways to come out of trauma in the fourth part of the series. And here are some recovery do's and don'ts. I will trust my intuition. I will not, I will no longer partake in impossible situations. I will take it one day at a time. When I'm feeling anxious, I will not panic my, myself with negative thoughts. I will encourage myself with positive thoughts. I will manage my emotions rather than let them control me. I will take back my power. I will believe in myself. If I feel emotionally unstable, I will not try to connect with the object of my obsession. I will have compassion for myself and pay attention to my feelings. I endeavor to build a brand new toxicity-free life for myself. I will enjoy the rest of my life. I will remind myself that no matter what I've been through, life can be good. It's easy to lose yourself on your recovery journey. So anytime you feel lost, upset, guilty, or pining for abuser, try to remember 
these affirmations. I have no more energy to give to people who harm me. My emotional health is infinitely more important than supplying power to someone else's ego. My newfound clarity will guide me. I'm becoming rational and logical, which is why I'm listening to this podcast. And I am worthy of happiness. I'd like to throw in one, which is I don't entertain demons. That's my own. I really like that one of I want a trauma-free life. I appreciated that one. It reminds me of Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. She talks about how there was a, a toxic person in her life. And it was especially, I think, when she came out. And when she came out of the closet, basically divorced her husband. And then got together with Abby Wombach, who's her now wife. And she talks about the island, how basically she made a decision that the island was where her family deserved to be and anybody, and she was extremely strict about who was allowed on the island, right? And anybody who was not fully supportive and anyone who was not, you know, not healthy in any way was not allowed on the island at all, right? They just, they weren't even allowed. And like her island, it was like more of a psychological, but I also feel like it also applied to like her house and a number of different things like she's just like no like if you are unaccepting in any any way whatsoever like you are not allowed on the island and it felt like i mean i don't remember it was a great book i don't remember much else but i really remember that and i've always when i heard it i always was like that sounds nice but i can't do that because i have to keep up family appearances and now i'm just like fuck it I want my island. I have a question for you, which is that when we originally recorded this episode this morning, when we talked about all this stuff, you kept saying, well, doesn't the, the abuser deserves redemption? The, the abuser deserves redemption. Like after hearing all that a second time, what's, what do you, what do you feel about that? I think that a really strong first reaction to trauma bonding and, and understanding things about narcissists and abusers well, for one thing, one of the things you said to me was abusers are not evil. Like evil and abuse is not necessarily the same thing. And I was like, okay, that feels better because in my mind, I conflated the two. I was just like, an abuser is evil, right? Like, but at the same time, I also was really conflicted because I could feel, I think ultimately when you come out of a scapegoat position, right? When you're basically told that you are responsible for all of the problems that the family has, right? Like all of all, all the times that it's not showing up as perfect, when you're in that position, anything that goes wrong feels like it's your fault because you believe it, you internalize it, right? Everyone says it enough, or maybe just one person says it and nobody else denies it, right? Like nobody else in the family is like, no, no, that's not true, that's bullshit. You know, like they don't say anything. They know that it's being said and they don't say anything, regardless of whatever that is. You can get into a position where you really do feel responsible. So for me, hearing all that this morning and hearing all of this stuff about trauma and abuse, especially about abuse, I find it so hard because for the longest time I felt that I was the abuser, that I was the one who was responsible. So Anna and I were having a conversation about mutual versus reactive abuse, which we'll talk about in the next. And I think we can talk about more about this idea of like, you know, is the abuser evil and who's, you know, what, what counts as bad abuse and what counts as like, I mean, everything counts as bad abuse, but you know what I'm saying? Like reactive abuse, all the things we're going to be talking about things next episode, because for me, I feel really conflicted 
with my 60 and 3D and I have stayed in the 60 or 5D or whatever you want to say. I've stayed out of my body for the longest time because I felt that I was inherently bad or broken or evil, right? And that I was the abuser. So for me, defending my abuser when they came to it was actually just defending myself. Do you understand? Like I've come to understand that even just in the course of today. Do you see what I'm saying? Like when I defend my abuser, I'm actually just defending myself because I think I'm the, I think I'm the abuser. Right. But you actually were only retaliating or reacting versus actually instigating abuse. And right, Hallmark but, feature is the guilt that you feel. Right. And I never understood that. I was always told that it was just both of us would get into it. There was never this person started it or this person didn't, but there was always a significant manipulation of the situation in which it was only ever usually me and that other person. Right. And so therefore nobody was actually witness to it. And the few times that there was, and there was a very strong reaction, but I usually experienced most of it by myself. And therefore I believed the stories. So I think I'm coming around to your point of your perspective or Anna's perspective this morning was abusers are don't necessarily deserve redemption after a certain point. I believe that counter No, I didn't say they don't reserve redemption. I said that on this, the fifth D they deserve our love and compassion as all of us do. But in the three D we don't have to associate with them and they lose the privilege to connect with us when they are trying to abuse us and leech off our energy off of us and our happiness. You know, right. like I think that they lose the right I have, I don't want any narcissists in my life. Anyone who gaslights or displays narcissistic tendencies, I cut ties with, thank God, in my family. There aren't any narcissists in my immediate family or my extended family that I know of. Like, it's not a a difficult thing for me because they basically, like, I only know of a handful of narcissists, thank God. And, and they're, they're people that I don't have to interact with. Yeah, I, I just think it's so interesting because this morning I had such a massively strong reaction to you saying that. I was like, y'all, y'all should have heard me. I was just like, I was fucking angry because I was just like, no, they deserve redemption. I, they deserve redemption. And this entire day, I've just been wrestling with that entire idea of just like recognizing. Let God love them and redeem them, but it's not my job. Yeah. Well, I mean, I other than the God that exists within you, right? Like that's the other part. It's like, what about the God that exists within you? What, what if I want to be the holy... What if I want to be holy? I mean, I'm not saying that I'm, well, no, there are a lot of different, there are a lot of different spiritual things that say that, uh, that we are the saviors, like how we believe in our mind. So Ho'oponopono is that very concept, right? Which is that actually you have a holy experience. And if you're able to see and forgive the situation or the course of miracles, the true forgiveness, like you are actually able to, to have the holy mind right? That you can be a part of the savior. You're not, maybe not the sole savior, but you can be a part of the savior, right? So like, but maybe that's the dissonance. Maybe you can have compassion and forgiveness and then choose to never have connection. And that's okay. Well, like you can love and forgive a pedophile, but are you going to let them into your home? Well, no, exactly. That's my point. So this morning I was really reacting strongly to that because I was recognizing like the trauma bond for me has been a key that's helped me unlock why I kept internalizing and thinking that I was the one who was the abuser. You know what I mean? Even though it was really obvious. Yeah. Like, cause that like learning about reactive abuse, which we're going to talk about next time, like learning about reactive abuse and talking to you about it. Like, I'm just like, Oh shit. Okay. No, I actually understand this. So if anything, the person who deserves redemption is me. I think for all of us, the person who deserves 
redemption is me, is you, right? Like it's, it's always the person that if you're here and you're listening to it, then you're willing to do the work, even if you're counter dependent and you feel like you may be on that spectrum, or even if, you know, you've developed whatever maladaptive behaviors that make you feel as if you are the villain or you are the abuser, like you deserve redemption if you're here for it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Next week, we're going to talk about the other trauma responses. And then the following week, we'll talk about healing these traumas. And I just want to say that if you yourself are experiencing domestic violence, you can call 1-800-799-7233. You are not weak. You are not bad. If, you know, like I just, you know, we are, yeah. we are it's so complicated. Like, I just want to say that being in a toxic relationship or being with an abuser is very complicated. And it's, it's really hard for a lot of people to wrap their head around why are you staying? You know, it, it's so, it's, there's so much more to it than just leave. And we, we understand the complexities of that. And we do hope that if you are in the stage, you're ready to leave, that you reach out and get some help. Yeah. We love you guys. Good luck. Hang in there while we get through this series. Stay tuned next week for part three of four, where we will talk about fight, freeze, and flight. In the meantime, stay safe and love yourself. And remember, humility, gratitude, acceptance, done. Hello, TSF family. It's Christina here. In our journey of self-discovery, Anna and I have explored numerous tools and processes, just as many of you have during this TSF journey with us. The community of beautiful souls we've connected with both energetically and in reality is truly awe-inspiring. Thank you for being a part of it. Now, I invite you to join me this fall in 2023 for my Zoom course, Redeeming Your Inner Villain Transformation Circle. Over the past year, I've channeled and undergone a transformational journey in redeeming my inner villainy, which I'll talk about later this season. But we'll be shifting in this course our perspective to recognize our role in villainizing the aspects of ourselves that perpetuate the drama triangle, both internally and externally. This process has enabled me to unravel and love parts of myself that once villainized, my neurodivergence, my maladaptive behaviors, among other things. Embark on this journey of self-love with me. I am currently offering free 30-minute exploration calls for those interested in this opportunity or who just want to catch up. Visit www.chriswilsey.com and click begin my quest to schedule your call. And remember, our TSF family receives a special 10% discount on this course when you choose to sign up. Join me in redeeming your inner villain and embracing self-love like never before. Don't miss this chance to transform your perspective and your life. Visit www.chriswiltsy.com today. Thanks, y'all. Let me tell y'all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer... One girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.